Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible psychologist, sex therapist, and author, Dr. Cheryl Frazier. Hello, Cheryl, and welcome to the show. Hello, Zach. It's just a delight to be here and to serve your audience and to help people, as I like to say, fall in love over and over again with the one we're already with. And it is a delight to have you on. And today we are going to be talking about the three keys to passion. Mm. And for those that don't know, Dr. Cheryl Frazier is a clinical psychologist, Buddhist sex therapist, published author, as well as an experienced meditation teacher. She writes about love and relationships, sexuality and passion, meditation and mindfulness, and what it takes to become a fully awake, happy, compassionate human being. She combines her knowledge of how the mind works with her mission to help people create sexy, passionate, and playful relationships. Dr. Cheryl's new online workshop for couples, Become Passion, Create Love That Lasts a Lifetime, brings her work to your own living room. And her new book is entitled Buddha's Bedroom, The Mindful Loving Path to Sexual Passion and Lifelong Intimacy. How are you today, Cheryl? I am so great. You and I were just sharing stories about being blessed to live on the Pacific Coast. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking out at the ocean. I'm enjoying talking to you and hopefully helping everybody listening to become more intentional about creating the love they desire, whether they're looking for love or uh, in love or falling out of love. Yeah, we have a tall order for today. Sexy, passionate, playful relationships, secret keys to passion. But I have to begin with Buddha's bedroom (laughs) because for a lot of people, when they think of Buddhism, they think of selling their possessions, becoming a monk, becoming celibate, swearing off sensual pleasure as just part of the illusions of the world, and that our attachment to physical pleasure only brings suffering because because nothing lasts. So what's the deal? Why are we combining our sexuality with our Buddhist practice? Because I'm a blasphemous creature. <laughs> and I should be booted out of the Buddha Academy. No, I tongue in cheek uh, to ground this uh, for people, particularly those listening without meditation or any Buddhist leanings or background. I'm actually a fairly highly trained teacher of Buddhism, both in the Theravadan tradition and in the Tibetan tradition. I've done multiple four-month silent retreats and tantric retreats and many things. And I never, ever desire the title of my book, Buddha's Bedroom, to be seen as irreverent or disrespectful. The wonderful Jack Cornfield and his wife, Trudy, wrote the introduction for the book. And they say in their introduction, you know, we're a joyfully passionate sexual couple. Now, Jack is arguably the best known and uh, maybe most lofty uh, North Mm. American Buddhist teacher. So to cut to the chase, you said it beautifully, Zach, you said that the Buddha is misinterpreted as saying that the attachment to sensual pleasures is suffering. 
the reason that's misinterpreted is people gloss over the word you skillfully used, which is the attachment to sensual pleasures is the problem. In Tibetan Buddhism, for example, sense pleasures around food, around drink, and even around sexual energy respectfully shared with another are taken as energy sources to actually transmutate. Mm -hmm. We do this in high-level tantra practice to transmutate the power of pleasurable activity, to see the emptiness of it, and to transmute it into an experience of emptiness and bliss and clear mind. That's probably a bigger topic for another day, but to bring it down to perhaps a layperson, someone who doesn't know anything about Buddhism or even meditation, the idea behind the title Buddha's Bedroom is it's our mind state. It's how we invest our mind in our relationship and in our sexual encounters that determines the depth and breadth and beauty and pleasure of that experience. Now, if you cling and attach to it, you're in trouble. Let me ground this right now in a very common relationship complaint, long-term relationship. And I want to define long-term relationship as being in a relationship for 6, 12, 18 months or longer. So holy smokes, Dr. Cheryl, that's not very long, (laughs) you bet. Because what happens, as we know, because we're humans in human bodies who've had relationships, in the first, say, 18 months of a relationship, we're falling madly in love. By the way, Zach, we are literally madly in love. You may or may not know this, but functional MRI scans indicate that the way the brain works when we're on love is the same biochemistry as obsessive compulsive disorder. So we literally are biochemically affected to be super focused on the person we're dating and falling in love with, super aroused. It's the chase. It's the cave person needing to chase and conquer a mate. And it's very exciting. Now, what is she talking about and how does this relate to Buddhism? Hang with me here. So what happens after a year, year and a half? Well, you become familiar to me. You're no longer as exciting as novel and all that. My brain's no longer lighting up with the crazy, I've got to conquer him and make him my cave person or her my cave person. And what happens next? Well, we get a cave, man, and we decorate it and we look at having cave babies and our biochemistry changes to the uh, chemistry more of contentment, of regularity, of familiarity. That's how we build hearth and home. Mm -hmm. By the way, I know this goes without saying, but I want to say it anyway. Anything you and I are talking about, we both know applies to any couple, gay, lesbian, transgender, alternative pairings. Any of what I say applies to everyone, of course, not just heteronormative couples. So I get bored with you to put it bluntly and straightforwardly. Even if you're the most fascinating partner in the world, if I've been with you for three, four, 10, 20, 30 years, if I'm not careful, if I don't cultivate a mindful approach to you, if I don't use my mind to be curious, to uh, have things feel new, even if we've done them a hundred times before, I am bored, not, you are not boring. If you go to work tomorrow, Okay, Mm. we're in some lockdown, we may not be going to work, but let's say it's post lockdown and you're going to work. A new person who meets you tomorrow, if you're in a committed long-term relationship, you go off to the office, you meet somebody new who's joined your team at work, they'll find you fascinating. This is where affairs begin, by the way, is Mm. someone finds us new and fascinating and we find them new and fascinating and then somehow, some way, we cross the line. Am I saying we're all going to cheat if we're bored? No. But as a sex therapist and marriage therapist and couple therapist, I'm going to say that the majority of transgressions of affairs happen because we have forgotten to find our partner fascinating. That's where meditation comes in. 
that's where Buddhism comes in. Because if you've ever sat, and I know you have as a yogi and a mindfulness practitioner, if you've ever sat and tried to find your breath interesting for 45 minutes, you know it's not easy. And what we're cultivating is having this moment, this breath, or let's make this a little more pleasurable, people. Imagine right now, Zach, that I gave you and everyone listening a tiny sliver of the most exquisite Belgian truffle. And I don't want you to put it on your tongue quite yet. And I ask you to wait a moment. And everybody do this with us. Do a thought experiment. Imagine you put a sliver of Belgian truffle on your tongue right now. Mm. Exactly. You probably are salivating. There's a light up. There's an experience of mmm. Now, if I, I wish I could have quickly FedExed you some, but if you had a, <laughs> a bit of chocolate right now, we were melting it together. Here's what would not happen after we consumed that tiny sliver of pleasure. We wouldn't say, ah, but it's boring. I've known chocolate for 20 years, would we? No. No, no. Why? Well, because each chocolate, if we're paying attention to it, is a new moment. If you're a coffee, or in my case, a tea aficionado, when I brew whichever of my 40 loose leaf teas I choose this morning, I sit down with that cup of tea and I don't ever think, this is so boring, I've had tea every day for you know hundreds and hundreds of days in a row. But we do that with our love affair. We do that with our partner in terms of finding them interesting as a human. And we do it with our sex life. I often call the typical North American sex life, nipple, nipple, crotch, good night. Right. And people usually laugh because they recognize that I touch you here. You touch me there. If it's a you know, if it goes well, we both have an orgasm and then we're done. Listen to how I'm mimicking that. Right. I'm using a bit of boredom, a bit of complacency in my voice. When we forget that this sliver of chocolate truffle is the only sliver I'm ever going to have in this moment. This kiss with you is the only kiss I'm ever going to have in this moment. That's where we train the mind using principles that I draw from Buddha Dharma, because that's my background, but you can draw from secular meditation, slowing down in pranayama in, in yogic practice, or simply slowing down, shutting up, and looking at your sweetheart tonight with curiosity, asking them a question to which you don't know the answer, like, I don't know, if you came back to life as an animal, what would you want to be? Find them interesting again. That's all in the mind. That's where we bring Buddha into the bedroom. Okay. That was a lot. (laughs) (laughs) What I'm hearing from you is, first of all, it's not that Buddhism is rejecting pleasure and happiness, but it is saying that our attachment to it is what actually causes suffering. So we can still experience pleasure and enjoyment in the bedroom, in our relationships. And then I feel like you're describing what some psychologists might call habituation or automation in our relationships when we shift from feeling like we're falling in love and we feel really awesome about our partner, tons of sexual energy, to like the commitment stage where we begin to take our partner for granted and find them less interesting and less fascinating and they just are kind of like our roommate rather than our new lover. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, this is when a majority of affairs happen because we forget to find our partner fascinating, which I love that idea. So what I'm hearing from you is that when we apply our Buddhist wisdom, when we apply the practices of mindfulness, such as the presence and such as the curiosity that we encourage in meditation practice, that it basically stops the 
process of automation of habituation? Like, tell us a little bit more about once we train the mind to be present, remain curious with our partner, how does that change what many people experience as inevitable of dropping passion and moving towards commitment? What does that training the mind look like and what do we experience differently in our relationships? So great questions. Um, and I'll direct people who want to go deeper into it to the book because I talk a lot about the four foundations of Buddhism, et cetera, et cetera, that we won't really cover here. But it's really simple and really difficult to remember to do. And by the way, the translation of the, of the Buddhist Pali word that is translated into mindfulness, the word is actually sati. And a better English translation would be re remembering. What does that mean? Well, tonight, maybe we've got our routine. Sweetheart gets home from work. Uh, we have a bite to eat. If we've got kids, we do our kid stuff. Uh, and then maybe we watch our show at 9 p.m. And we can go through that routine tonight and have it be pleasant and okay. Uh, but we can just run through the routine between, say, 6 p.m. and 10 p.m. and not really live any of it. So that present moment, a term that's mm. used so much people have forgotten what it really means, is really enjoy your dinner, really pay attention to and get lit up with the conversation with your kids or your spouse around the dinner table. Enjoy the show. Don't just automatically, as you said, habituated, automatic. So mindfulness looks like waking up over and over again, re-remembering mm. instead of being on automatic pilot. I was saying to you, Zach, just before we started recording, that for two years I had the pleasure to live over the Golden Gate Bridge in Marin County outside San Francisco. And five days a week, I took a commuter bus from that area over the Golden Gate Bridge to the hospital. Now, anyone who's had the pleasure to see the San Francisco Bay, it's a beautiful, beautiful view. I made a point on that ride over the Golden Gate Bridge every day for two years to put down whatever I was looking at, a magazine, a book, whatever it was sort of before we all had a computer in our hand, and to stop and to look out the window and to see the beauty off the Golden Gate Bridge. And then I would look around at everybody mm. else on the bus and not a single person other than me was looking out the window. Mm. So I saw that for two years, 52 weeks, five days a week, I tried, and I'm not going to say I hit a perfect streak, but I tried to stop and at least for, say, 30 to 60 to 90 seconds, appreciate the view outside the window. That's mm. a very simple example of what you and I are talking about. Can we stop for 30 seconds and really see our sweetheart? Can we stop blah, 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 all the details of life, which are very important to share with our partner, and just take a breath and hold their hand? Can we unexpectedly kiss them when we walk by them to get the milk out of the fridge? This may sound trivial. It's actually profound. When we can show up with that sliver of truffle for a minute or two or three, we interrupt that habituation you were talking about. We interrupt being an autopilot. We interrupt and show up and actually experience what's happening, which can lead to much more sense pleasure, mm. can lead to much more enjoyment of what's happening. The other thing I want to say, different than we've said so far about applying the teachings of Buddhism to relationship and sexuality, is watch out for the stories in your head. There's the data of what's actually happening. Partner walks in the house at the end of the day. You say, hey, did you remember the cat food? They say, oh, darn, I forgot it. That's the data. What is the story that then mm -hmm. occurs? Is the story, ah, you don't care about what I asked you to do, or you're so forgetful, I can't rely on you, or goodness sakes, again, all of that story is suffering. 
We've made up a story because we're attached to an expectation. For this mini example, I guess the expectation is you'll remember the cat food that you said you'd get and that I texted you at two o'clock to remind you to get, right? And I put a sticky note on the car steering wheel to remind you to get. Expectation. The fact that the cat food is in the store or in your house isn't the problem. That's just facts. That's just data. The problem in your relationship is when you make up a story about what that data means, like you're a crappy partner, I'm mad at you. So there's much more to say there, but it isn't a marketing gimmick, I suppose, to put the word Buddha in the book title, because the idea of Buddha, what Buddha actually means, Bodhi means awake, unfolded, alive. And really what I'm saying, have an awake, unfolded, alive bedroom and relationship and the way you approach conflict and how you fight fair and how you make up and begin again. How can you work with your mind, as I said right off the top today, to fall in love over and over with the one you're already with? I love your definition or description of mindfulness, that mindfulness looks like waking up over and over again. And I love that better than like when people just describe it as just being in the present moment, because isn't the present moment the only thing that exists? Like even I'm thinking about tomorrow, I'm still doing it right now. Right. Fair enough. (laughs) But waking up over and over again is just a beautiful sentiment. And what I'm hearing from you is just really wonderful wisdom teachings that are so important to bring into our relationship. So one thing I'm hearing from you is basically this idea that I teach in meditation, which is If you are bored, you are simply not paying attention, right? Like with your partner who is new every day, with the day which is new every day, you're not noticing the richness of our experience. And I also love what you said about stopping the details, stopping the story, and truly being present. And I think I read it in one of Pema Chodron's book, just this lovely quote that we cannot believe our stories and be present at the same time. And then finally, what I'm hearing from you is just the truth that impermanence means that nothing lasts. And that doesn't mean that nothing matters. It means that every moment suddenly becomes precious. Yes. Yes. It's a huge difference between a misunderstanding of what Buddhism means. The misunderstanding is it's nihilistic. Pleasure's bad, life sucks, and then you die. That's what I used to think Buddhism was in my 20s because the only Buddhist I knew about was the uh, singer now passed away, Leonard Cohen, who's an incredible Mm. poet and singer. But depressed kind of guy and he was a major zen uh, i believe he was ordained in the zen tradition Mm -hmm. and so i thought buddhism was life is suffering and then you die get over it (laughs) when we enter into it we realize it's a it's that's a misunderstanding what it is is there is suffering in life therefore celebrate the moments. Some of them are going to be good. Some of them are going to be neutral. Some of them are going to be negative or painful. But the preciousness of this human life, of this experience, wake up to it. When we chase pleasure all the time, we're missing what's actually happening. And we're like an an addict. We Mm. want to jump from this pleasurable cup of coffee to the pleasurable TV show, to the pleasurable orgasm, to the pleasurable chocolate bar. And in between, we're discontented because we're always waiting for something pleasurable. That's the attachment piece you mentioned off the top. And that's what leads to the suffering, not the chocolate or the orgasm or the TV show. It's our state of mind that miss understands and thinks, I must have this object, this thing in order to feel good. Mm. Oh, I feel good. I like feeling good. Oh, that object's now finished or I'm tired of it. I need a new object. That's the definition of suffering, Mm. not the object itself. Absolutely. 
a lot of people think that their actions are moving towards pleasure, but a lot of the time it's just moving from one state of dissatisfaction to the next. <laughs> yes, absolutely, Zach. And that's also a better translation into English of the word dukkha, which is translated as suffering. A more correct definition is unsatisfactory. Hmm. So let's see if we can connect all these really wonderful lessons to our topic for today, which is the three keys to passion. Mm. And you have this lovely diagram, and on three sides it has thrill, sensuality, and intimacy. Mm -hmm. And before we get into each one, I'm curious, because I love your integration of the clinical side as well as the spiritual side. So how did you arrive at these three factors? Mm, wow. So that was a journey of multiple decades. Essentially, it starts with the fact that to my great tragic loss at the age of 12 or 13, I discovered that Sean Cassidy was not, in fact, my soulmate. Now, you may be a little young to know all about Sean, but he was all that when I was a young teenager. He was a <laughs> pop star. He starred in the network Hardy Boy show. He was the cutest Hardy Boy ever. And I was madly, desperately in love with him and had ridiculous amounts of fantasies, including very explicit sexual ones for a young girl, uh, 12 or 13, wow. healthy sexual ones of, you know, what he was going to do to me one day. And I was fairly convinced he was going to find me on this little island off the coast of Canada and sweep me off to Beverly Hills where I would live, wait for it, happily ever after. <laughs> Spoiler alert, Zach, didn't happen. So it really starts there, though. It started with a lifelong longing to be complete in love, to find the soulmate, to mm. have life make sense, be joyful, and to help me live happily ever after. And that catapulted me into my actual love affairs uh, later in life, into an early marriage, awesome wedding, and Mamma Mia style on a cliff in Greece. It was insane. But we got divorced two years later because we didn't have the skills. It led me to my uh, first degrees in science and psychology. I was accepted to med school, then eventually chose to go to clinical psychology instead, seeking to answer the question, why do we suffer in love? Why isn't it easier? Why, why don't we find someone? And yeah, sure, there's some regular life ups and downs, but why aren't we happier? Mm. Then I got some answers. I studied with the best. I got all the psychology answers, not all of them, but you know what I mean. The sex therapy mm -hmm. answers, the communication answers, and I still didn't have a good answer. That's when I more and more moved into Buddha Dharma. And as soon as I finished my postdoc work, instead of accepting a tenure track professor job the way I was supposed to, <laughs> I bought a one-way ticket to India. And I went for seven months and studied uh, with various masters in the Tibetan tradition, the Dalai Lama. Some people are more in the spirit rock tradition because I was still trying to answer the question we've been talking about since the top today, which is why do we suffer so much? We're, especially you and I, and a lot of our compatriots, Zach, we're in the top five or two percent of the world in terms of our creature comforts in terms of world population why aren't we way happier with our partner in our homes in our you know safe places we live with good drinking water with love with medical care etc why aren't we happier so that mm. eventually led to me quitting being um, a teacher of love and sex and relationships. I was teaching big couples workshops back then, 10, 15 years ago, and exclusively going down the Dharma path, essentially being something of a nun. I was also single for about a decade while I was teaching other couples how to have amazing love lives. 
ironically. So it went on and I left the field of sex and love therapy and into full Dharma teaching. I was just teaching Buddhism and retreats, not just, but focusing on that. And then I had a moment of epiphany that um, we probably don't need to go into in detail here, but someone said to me, actually Trudy Goodman, Jack uh, Cornfield's wife said, why don't you teach both? I'm like, you can't teach both. You can't teach Dharma and sex. Nobody was doing that. It was verboten. And I actually brushed her off, said, no, 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 that, that's fine. I don't teach sex anymore. And then I um, went on a blind date by accident and fell in love. And wow. right after, toddled off to India for five months for a retreat. And I'm in India and I'm standing on a rickety staircase in the Himalayas in Sopema, which is a, a beautiful place to go meditate. And I'm like, what am I going to be, Zach? Am I going to be Cheryl, the Dharma teacher, half half a nun? Am I going to give it all up and fall in love and go with this man? <clears throat> Spoiler alert to whom I'm now married. What am I going to do? And then I realized both. They aren't separate paths. If you choose to walk the path of relationship in an awake way, I am not saying I'm awake. Just ask my husband. <laughs> Holy bananas. If there's a, re a relationship mistake to make, I've made most of them. I still make some of them now. I made a couple yesterday. But what I am is really curious about how we can reignite passion when it fades after that year or two, how we can fall in love and find our mate interesting when they forget cat food. Yes, that's a real example from my home. Uh, what are we going to do if we want great love? Sean Cassidy wasn't it. And guess what? My husband isn't it either. He is not my soulmate. I teach us to all kill the soulmate because soulmate is a ridiculous mm. expectation of needing certain objects, certain external circumstances in order to be happy. So if you're my partner, Zach, I need you to be certain ways to do certain things and treat me certain ways pretty consistently in order for me to be happy. That's the root of suffering. That's me being attached to needing certain circumstances. I need you to make a fuss on my birthday. I need you to tell me I'm beautiful every day. I need you to have more sex with me. I need you to make the meals I like, then do the dishes after, whatever it is, big or small. We suffer in our relationship when we expect it to be a certain way to make us happy. And when you hear that, you can hear that without meaning to, because we're all beautiful people, there's a lot of selfishness in that approach that we may not be aware how selfish we're being. I need you to be a certain way so I'm happy. That's not our heart. That's not our real intentions, but we get stuck in it. So all of that led to me bringing it together. And the three keys to passion, the passion triangle you've referred to, is the way I choose to teach it, to make it graspable, and to give couples a structure they can hang on to. And they can actually rate themselves. We can put a link below this podcast to a free quiz I have. It takes under 10 minutes. Where you rate yourself, where are you currently strong and weak on those three keys to passion that we'll talk a bit about in a few minutes. So you can say, oh, we're doing great on number one and two, and we're pretty weak in number three, babe. Let's focus on reigniting that side of the passion triangle. So, wow, amazing life path that you just described. Bouncing back and forth between the psychological and the spiritual realms between United States and India. And you mentioned this question many times, why do we suffer in love? And so I'm going to have to ask the great guru right here. So <laughs> my question, <laughs> so I have to ask, because I, I heard a bit, you mentioned that we have like this very fairy tale idea about our soulmate that 
all we have to do to be happy in life is find the right person. Right. And all the love and joy and happiness that we need and want will just erupt naturally and we'll live happily ever after. So that was kind of one reason you mentioned why we suffer in love. But is there more? So my fundamental question, why do we suffer in love? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's pull it together. We talked uh, in the beginning there, we talked about the falling in love, the crazy, the biochemical, the madness, the wonderfulness that changes. So we suffer in love because we don't realize that's going to change. Mm. We don't realize that the romance and the lust and the spontaneous passion and the excitement will change. And unfortunately, the romance industry tells us the opposite. So does Walt Disney, by the way. We should sue that dude for happily ever after. But anyway, the most high-selling, high highest-grossing type of fiction book is romance literature, uh, rom-coms, you know, Hallmark movies. There's so much out there telling us this is the way it should be. And the people in those rom-coms are amazing. They're saying and doing the things we long for. We suffer because we have a completely wacko expectation of the soulmate, of love being easy, of the way we feel in the beginning, of course, is the right way to feel. And we should always feel that way. It's simple lack of knowledge. You know, that one of the most important things I ever say to any couple, the couples in my online immersion program, the couples I work with in different ways. Three words, you are normal. You are normal if you rarely or ever make love anymore. You are normal if you're bored with your mate, but you love them and you're not looking to cheat or break up. You just have settled for what seems to be what is the way it's supposed to be, right? Dr. Cheryl, the thrill doesn't last forever, right? Well, commonly, the thrill doesn't last forever, which makes you typical. But my teaching is about how to reignite the thrill, how to take the reality of human bodies, human biochemistry, human psychology, and the the, the pressures of life, trying to sustain interest over decades and say, okay, what's normal is I don't feel very in love with you anymore, even Mm. if I don't want to leave you. What's normal is I rarely have spontaneous sexual arousal. The majority of couples after a year or two very rarely have spontaneous horniness. They have what's called responsive desire, meaning they've got to start making love when they don't feel like it. And through the act of choosing to be erotic, our desire and our arousal and our pleasure grows. So The reason long-term love is such a hard gig is we have wildly unrealistic ideas of how easy it should be and how if it's not easy, there's something wrong with us and maybe we've chosen the wrong person. That's where I say kill the soulmate and save your relationship. Mm. Kill the idea that, that there's a better person and instead ask yourself, how can I be a better partner, a better lover? How can we reignite? How can we invest time and intentionality in this, as I like to say, imperfectly perfect person standing right across from you. They're not your soulmate, but they're awesome. Mm. I love your little nuggets of wisdom. Kill your soulmate and save the relationship. (laughs) (laughs) I get some flack for that one. People say, I'm with my soulmate. And Mm. I say, good for you. What you're with is an extraordinary person. There probably were dozens of others that could have been great for you. And I'm glad you've settled (laughs) on this one. Uh, But it's not all going to be perfect. And when it's hard, if you think, ooh, heck, I thought Zach was it, but I'm really unhappy with him. He must not have been it. That's where it gets really problematic. Mm. Why I got to rain in my parade? Sorry, man. (laughs) Sorry. Don't take it too personally. (laughs) All right. So people don't realize that their feelings of love will change, that the feelings of 
incredible sexual desire and feeling of in love will not last forever. And much of your work in the world is on reigniting that passion. Yes. So we have the three secrets to that. First one is thrill. So what is thrill and how do we bring it into our relationship? Okay. So the three keys to passion as I teach them, the three sides of that passion triangle you've referred to are intimacy, thrill, and sensuality. And I'm actually going to start with intimacy and do thrill second. Sure. Uh, when I use the word intimacy here, I'm not using it as a euphemism for sex, the way we might say, oh, would you like to be intimate? That's a beautiful way to use that word, but I'm using it differently. When I say intimacy, I'm referring to more the psychological, emotional communication part of being a couple. Do we resolve and manage our conflicts reasonably well? If not, I'll teach people how to do that because it's really important. Uh, when I get home at the end of the day, you're the first person I want to talk to. I want to tell you the minutiae of my DAA and hear about yours. Also, when I have good news, you're the first person I want to call. This is what we think of as a really good relationship between a couple is that we're each other's best friend to some degree. We've got each other's back. Uh, we go through the ups and downs of life together. We share hopes and dreams. We talk about the future. A lot of couples listening are pretty strong in intimacy. It's the one that generally longer term couples are still pretty strong in. About 30% of them are not because they're fighting and miserable. But about maybe 70% are like, yeah, we're, we're great friends. I love my sweetheart. We barely ever have sex and I'm not that excited about them, but they're awesome and I wouldn't trade them for anything except a romance novel because that longing in me is unfulfilled. Then we get to the second side of the passion triangle, the three key factors to cultivate, reignite, or if you've never had them, to bring into your relationship, and that's the side of thrill. That encompasses a lot of what we've been talking about today, and I use that word thrill about the excitement, the interest, the great curiosity you have towards your sweetheart, the um, urge and the enjoyment to want to plan dates, plan adventures, go do fun things together, to surprise your sweetheart, whatever it is that lights you up or used to lit you up when you were dating. You probably did it pretty naturally then, whether it was, whether it was wearing sexy underwear and dressing up in an attractive way, whether it was planning cool dates, you know, reading the reviews on that the neatest new restaurant around the corner or trying to find a movie or a live event you knew your partner would love. We were pretty freaking awesome at Thrill when we were dating. Mm -hmm. We put in the effort, we put in the time, we were excited and we were receptive. When our partner said, oh, I don't like tomato soup, we were like, really? How come? Now it annoys us that they don't like tomato soup because <laughs> tomato soup's awesome and they should like tomato soup. We change our mind, not our mate. Our mate isn't the problem, the mind is a problem. That's a tough teaching and we need to take that deeper one day, but really it's about thrill is also in the head. If this sounds a little repetitive, that's on purpose because all of our human experience from eating a truffle to loving someone for the long term, for deciding how to let go of a friendship that no longer serves us is in our head. Our mind is where we meet the world. So thrill is the excitement and the joy and the, you're freaking awesome. It's like, mm. um, I have a, I have an office upstairs here from my home, Zach, and I have to go out of my house and go up 10 stairs and then open a different door to go into the separate office suite. Now, the odd time I go up there and I forget something, I forget my appointment book or something. So I turn around and I come back down. I've been gone 90 seconds. Now, Zach, I live along with my hubby, who's usually not home in the day, with two dogs. What do you think happens when I come and open the door after 90 seconds? The dogs come? They go crazy. <laughs> they jump up and down and they wag and they wiggle and they're thrilled because Cheryl exists and she's the greatest person 
on the whole planet, even if they only saw me 90 seconds before. That's thrill. When's the last time you treated your sweetheart like that when they walked in the door? right? It's kind of that easy. I actually give that as an exercise and people now have that as an exercise. Literally for the next week, every time your spouse gets home or if you get home after them, when you get home, whichever spouse is in the house first, get up, run to the door, pretend you're a Labrador retriever that is thrilled to see (laughs) this person come home. Yeah, it's goofy. Yeah, it's fun. But I tell you what, Whenever we do it, we will laugh, it will lighten our heart. And it's a goofy, sweet way to remind ourselves, you are freaking amazing. I am thrilled you walked through the door. You exist and that's enough for me, right? So that's Mm -hmm. thrill. And if people take the quiz and rate themselves, generally what we see, unless you're pretty early in your relationship, is lots of intimacy, high score in intimacy, medium to low on thrill, sometimes flatlined. And then the third key to passion, the third side of the passion triangle is sensuality. And I use that word to describe the entire spectrum of erotic and physical connection, everything from holding hands when you're walking to the store to the most raw, taboo, crazy, out of the box, fantasy sex, and everything in between, the entire spectrum of sensuality. That is a place that for some of us, it it was pretty easy in the beginning. We had a great and and horny and very highly tuned sex life. We learned each other's bodies, rhythms. We probably tried more positions. We were probably more adventuresome. We probably were less inhibited in the beginning. Not true for all of us, of course. And yet, where are we now? I'm going to share a, a statistic from a survey I did last October, about four or five months ago. I teach twice a year, I teach a free uh, passion workshop a free mini couples workshop online in fact it's coming up this month people may be able to grab one of those time slots and it's uh, about an hour and a half on the three keys to passion with a q a and i had about 2500 people sign up for those uh workshops it's the same one i teach it a few times over a week or so and i did a little survey zach and i asked them multiple choice question the first one was how would you rate your sex life these days and in there there were five options. One was we don't have any sex. One was it's rare. One was it's not very good in quality or quantity. One was, you know, it's okay. It's pretty good, but I would like a little more quality or quantity. And then the the top um, one was we have a great sex life. Only 8% of people said they had a great sex life. 8%. Mm. I asked another question, which was basically about thrill. And it was, you know, do you feel bored with your mate these days? Or, you know, you like them, but it's not that sparkling. Or, you know, you're still really excited about your mate and you still find yourself pretty thrilled by them. Only 11% said they were still thrilled. And I repeat that because I want it to reassure everybody listening. The three most important words I ever say to couples are you are normal. You are normal if your Mm. sex life is poor or non-existent or it's okay, but it's not great. You're normal if you don't feel the thrill and excitement, but I'm here to help you be abnormal statistically, (laughs) which is to recreate and reignite or find for the first time, if you're a minority of couples who didn't have much thrill or excitement to start with, how can you uncover what's already present? How can you go inside to find that interest, that excitement, that energy, that effort? Goodness sakes, we put so much effort into our career into our education, into raising our kids, into being a great cook or a great gardener or a great golfer. But we, again, back to these unexamined expectations that the society kind of puts into us, we kind of think our relationship should take care of itself. I'm fond of saying, yeah, how's that working? 
how you doing with that, <laughs> right? There may be two, three, four percent of couples, blessed, lucky, well-studied unicorns where they stay in love and crazy and thrilled and sexual over the long term. Great. Well, only 8% of my respondents said they had a great sex life and only 11% said they were still excited about their spouse. Most of them said, about 60, 70% said, yeah, I like my spouse and uh, we're good buddies and we run our life well. That's intimacy. So to review, we've got three keys to passion, intimacy, thrill, and sensuality. I would put forward that for a rich, passionate relationship that excites and interests us over the long term, we need to invest some of our time and energy and learning in, as I've said, finding out where we're currently strong and weak. Because of course, through the cycle of our lives and the cycle of our relationships, when we've got young babies versus when we've got teenagers, when we're retired, uh, our passion triangle strengths and weaknesses are going to uh, rise and fall at different life cycles. Where are you right now? And what would you like to do about it to learn? Because here's the thing, people feel so discouraged. You can learn these skills. It's not easy. And of course, they're not quick fixes. I wish they were. But like anything else, hey, if, if you've got 100 pounds to lose, you can lose 100 pounds. It might take you a year or two and you need good coaching, good guidance, and the right information about food and about moving your body and other things, maybe dealing with some underlying medical issues so that you can get there. But everybody listening knows it's at least possible to lose weight. The question is, will we make the effort and learn and get the coaching and support to do it? So I like to reassure people, whether it's listening to fine podcasts like this, reading a book, going to a weekend workshop, taking a class. I Twice a year, I take a group of couples through a 10-week immersion online couples program. You can join if that is a fit for you. I don't really mind where you do it, but do it. Invest in your life. Make passion a priority. I like to say great love and sex, great passion is not an accident. Extraordinary couples are made, not discovered. And like anything else in life, we need to learn the skills and the techniques and we need to roll up our metaphorical sleeves and say, I'm going to do this with you. Let's reinvest in us. Let's learn how to be better together. And that's what really excites me when I can play any small role in helping couples reignite the passion they think they've lost and challenge the idea that the thrill can't last forever. It's a bit like saying a fire can't last forever. Well, then go get some more kindling and some more wood and a new flame and begin again. Okay, well, I'm drinking through a wisdom fire hose right here. So, <laughs> <laughs> Why, thank you. That's a very nice compliment. Well, that was... <laughs> so that was wonderful and informative. And I'm, I'm imagining this conversation with somebody where I say, yeah, me and my wife are getting into role play in order to really spice things up. And they say, oh, really? Like, what kind? And I say, well, when they come home, I pretend I'm a dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Exactly. And they're like, too much for me, man. Just yelled at my dad. I'm like, no, no, that's not what I meant. So we have intimacy, which is deep down just that feeling of connection and friendliness. And then thrill you mentioned is that that level of excitement. And you mentioned planning dates, adventures, and surprises. And I'm wondering if you just have any examples or you could give our listeners just some ideas about dates and adventures and surprises that they can do other than uh, being a Labrador retriever, for example, <laughs> that they can do to bring some thrill into their relationships. 
You bet. And in fact, we can link below this to a little video I sent out on Valentine's Day uh, about how to design how to design the perfect Valentine's date. And of course, it doesn't have to be on Valentine's Day. And then people can learn a little bit more if they wish. But it's not so much what you do for the date, although I'll quickly say I mentioned adventure. And there's some research, it's 20 or 30 years old now, but there was a great study that was done uh, where the researcher, a psychologist, he he got an attractive woman to um, stand at one end of a, of a suspension bridge, you know, a bit of a nerve wracking suspension bridge, right? You walk it and it wiggles and it's kind of scary. It gets your adventure up, gets your excitement and maybe a bit of fear up. Then mm -hmm. what he did is he randomly waited for guys of a certain age, sort of 20 to 35, that walked across the bridge. And then he had this fairly attractive female uh, lab assistant or walk up to them and say, hey, I'd like to ask you a few questions about, you know, the ecosystem around this bridge or something. And the some of the guys would say, sure. And the woman would ask them three or four quick questions. And then she'd say, so we're doing this study at the university about the ecosystem and bridges. And so if you want to, if you want to ever know about the study, uh, here's my phone number. You can call me and I'll link you to it when it's published. You hear what's happening because psychologists are so devious. Mm -hmm. What they were actually looking to see is whether the man would call the attractive woman using the ruse of being interested in the research as a reason to reach out. Here's what they found. When men walked across the bridge and were in a more heightened state of adventure, a little bit of fear, a little bit of excitement, they were much more likely to call this female researcher than if she stood at the beginning of the bridge before they had walked over it and had a level of excitement. What does that mean? Well, this researcher translated it into saying, look, if you want to find your partner more attractive, do something exciting together. And there's some other good proof that that works. So hmm. plan an adventure date. It doesn't have to be skydiving. It can be when it's safe to do so and things are open again. Uh, go to a salsa dance class. Hmm. It can be going to a restaurant that's different than the one you always go to. It could be going down to the Beach and taking a picnic because you don't do that very often. But the idea of something that's a little different, not habitual, not you go to the same restaurant and order the same exact sushi rolls you always order, that has a place too. That's in the intimacy side, the comfort side. But plan some more interesting dates. And I've just given you some data as to why they can make you feel more attracted to your partner. Hmm. But on the date, whether it's a date night at home with, I don't know, vegan hot dogs and, and, a, and a candelabra on the table. Here's what I want you to do on your date. And that's what this little video covers. I want you to limit the conversation and connection to a certain way of looking at how you're going to talk about the past, how you're going to talk about the present, and how you're going to talk about the future in the following way. When you talk about the past on this date, I want you to talk about good memories that the two of you had. Maybe your honeymoon, maybe previous special occasions, maybe that cool trip you took that time through Colorado, maybe the birth of your child and, and how wonderful and amazing it was to hold him or her for the first time. Don't talk about anything else other than positive, cool, wonderful, romantic, and yes, yeah, sexy memories of things you and I shared in the past. The second thing is the present. In the present, I want you to talk about what's actually happening. This is mindfulness and direct experience. Mm -hmm. what, is, what does this bite of food taste like right now? Oh, this is so good. There's something in there. I can't quite figure out that spice. Be in the present moment. Reach across if you're dining. Touch your partner's hand. Really feel your fingertips on them. So often we're talking blah, 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 even if it's interesting and important, but we're not here and now experiencing it. And then I want people to talk about the future in a specific way. I want them to talk about one or two future hopes 
and dreams or positive things or things they'd like to do or are looking forward to. Now, I created this video for a couple of weeks ago for Valentine's Day, like I said, and then I thought I better practice what I preach, which I really try to do. So I took my sweetheart out for Valentine's uh, about two weeks after I filmed that video and we did the technique. We talked about the past and I got to tell you, Zach, it was so fun. We ended up talking in detail about a trip we had to Africa about six years ago and we hadn't talked about it in a long time. And we tried to remember the various places we stayed and we were remembering, oh my goodness, we saw that pack of lions like kill that water buffalo and feed their babies. It was the most spectacular, scary thing. We probably talked about that trip to Africa for 45 minutes and we were lit up remembering things, bringing to mind this incredible shared experience. Then we were in the present moment talking about the food and holding hands and what it was like to be here together for our seventh Valentine's Day. And then we talked about the future. And because uh, like most of us, we have limited uh, or no travel in the next few months, probably we talked about ways to explore our own backyard. I live on Vancouver Island. We're allowed to travel on this island and there's so many beautiful places to go and things to do. So we talked about the future in terms of some trips and some explorations we'd like to do this summer together. And it was great. We really like hanging out together anyway, but we would not have limited our conversation in the way I've just taught it. We would have talked about everything willy-nilly. It made the date more romantic. It made it more special. It made it more precious. Hmm. So there's some take-home advice for people that they can do right now. You can do this at home. You can do this in your own home tonight. Set the table differently. Um, sit down and really pay attention instead of watching TV while you eat. Uh, set your bedroom up to be more erotic. Have a shower. Have a bath together. If you If it's not wise or safe to get out and about right now, please don't be imaginative and you can create a lot of adventure right at home. Mm. I love how what you're describing just feeds back into itself, like planning something adventurous, doing something exciting together, not only in the moment, of course, stimulates those feelings of excitement, but then later you can reflect on it, you can savor it, and you can bring it back into the moment and talk about it again. Mm -hmm, which is enhancing your intimacy. And when we talked about this incredible trip to Africa on safari, we brought some thrill into our Valentine's Day because it was exciting and amazing. We had a sense of wonder when we talked about the first time my husband, who's insanely mad about cats, he loves cats, the first time he saw a cheetah, right? It was extraordinary for him as it would be for any of us. And so we actually created thrill talking about being thrilled there it was really uh really beautiful hmm. that is really beautiful and another follow-up question i had earlier because you mentioned that eight percent participants um said they had a great sex life and how important it is to make passion a priority and i'm curious about the couples who don't feel it's a problem. So let's say they're like, oh yeah, at the beginning of a relationship, we had sex three times a day, every day. But now we we have we have sex once a year on birthdays or something. Right. If they don't experience a problem, you know, would you recommend that they can do make passion a priority because it is crucial for their relationship? Or is there a magic number of like, you know, how intimate mm. a couple should be? Or what would you recommend? First of all, really smart question. Se secondly, no, there's no magic number at all. The magic number is what the two of you feel satisfied and happy with. And if that's once a year on your birthday and you're both satisfied and happy with that, you do not have a sexual problem. 
Mm. You heard me emphasize the word both. I very rarely meet a couple where they're both very satisfied with their sexual life. If you are, and that's having sex once a day, once a year, or never, and you're both very content, you don't have a problem. But you're also a very low percentage of people. What's more likely is at least one person, and I would say, because I'm a shrink and I like to dive deep into people's minds, I would say at least one person is not satisfied but has resigned themselves to it and maybe isn't tormented by it, but ideally would like to have more sexuality and passion but they're willing to just go along the way it is and they're not bitter. But mm. I would put forward that the one that says, no, I'm just not into sex anymore. I don't, don't need it. I'm good. I'm content. When I work with per persons like that more deeply, generally, not always, uh, what's uncovered is that they have some sort of sexual shutdown, not necessarily from trauma or abuse or betrayal or being uh, through affairs in the past, although that can be part of it, but hormonally, physically due to menopause or childbirth or a man that's aging and his testosterone's low, which can happen to men in their 30s and 40s as well as older guys, um, or they've had an erection failure and an, it's astounding, even though men understand erection failures happen to all men, all possessors of a penis, it still does a major number on a lot of guys and they subconsciously start avoiding sex because they're mm. afraid to have a failure. So I'm a little suspicious in a good way when a couple says, oh no, we don't have sex or we rarely do, but we're both fine with it. I like to dig and make sure they're both fine with it. And if they are, mm -hmm. I say, you don't have a problem. This is your normal. It works for you. Hallelujah. You have a beautiful sex life once a year. Fantastic. And I would move on, but it's not very common that that's as simple as it is when we start to uncover and give people permission to say, well, I like the idea of having more passion. I'm I'm content without it. But yeah, I like the idea. And Zach, how many men and women, gay or straight, trans, any identity, are dissatisfied and then satisfying through fantasy, through masturbation, through porn, or through romance novels or anything in between? If we're living a life of more passion in our mind, I'm always curious to say, can we bring some of that out of our mind of just me and my mind to, you know, I really love romantic movies. Maybe I'd like more romance. Maybe I'd like to plan more fun dates along the lines of the one we just gave out as an exercise for people. So don't pathologize yourself if you like what you like, but get curious. Do you like what you like because you're used to it? Or would you like something else? You do not need to want to practice Kama Sutra number 89. You don't need to want anything. But I like to help people, and I do in the couples program, they go through a series of exercises uh, on their own, each partner identifying what turns them on and what turns them off, what their erotic fantasies are, what are things they might like to try, whether they're going to or not, what are things they don't want to try. And it's astounding how much people learn about their own sexuality, asking themselves questions that I've given them that they haven't asked. And they've kind of just put it on the back burner and catapulted through this busy life without really knowing much about their erotic being anymore. Yeah, listening to your response, I know it's very common, you know, when one couple in a relationship is like, oh, yes, our sex life is fine, isn't it, honey? And then... Mm -hmm. <laughs> then right. Uh, mm, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... Thank you so much, Cheryl. This hour has flown by your fountain of <laughs> wisdom. Um, this has been really incredible. I've learned learned so much. And I want to close up by asking a question I love to ask all of my guests. 
which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? Love is a dynamic thing and it needs tending and watering. Don't take love for granted. That's what I want people to know. And the other one we've covered already, which is you are normal. It is not true that everybody else is having great sex and no arguments. It's not true that everybody else has this figured out and you don't. And it's also likely not true that you are with the wrong person. It's a matter of understanding that this journey has a lot of ups and downs and you can learn how to go up and down together. Uh-huh. That was a nice mm. double entendre, not on purpose. <laughs> but maybe we'll stop there. <laughs> yes, relationships have their ups and downs, and sometimes, like in the bedroom, that's what you want. <laughs> exactly. There's another great book title. <laughs> oh, man. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Frazier, for coming on to the mm-hmm. show. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? Easiest way is my website, drsherylfraser.com. And that's where people can also uh, take the quiz if they want to rate their own passion triangle. And depending when this is released, uh, below this, we will put potentially a link to the free classes I teach uh, twice a year. And I would love to have everybody join those, learn a lot more about the passion triangle, get a few more techniques they can apply to their relationship. And in those classes, I also talk about my couples immersion program, which I offer twice a year where I take couples through a 10-week deep exploration into their relationship and really help them renovate it from the inside out. Hmm, Wonderful. Thanks so much for coming on to the show. And thank you listeners for listening to the show. We hope you remember all the wisdom teachings discussed in this hour, including you are normal. Mm -hmm. Uh, but also remember to remain curious and present with your partner. A majority of affairs happen because we have forgotten how fascinating our partner is. And we suffer in love because we don't realize that our feelings of love will change. The mate is not the problem. The mind is the problem. So make passion a priority amongst many other lessons. So... If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Cheryl. Thanks, Zach. It's been a pleasure. Have a beautiful day. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to zachbeach.com or theheartcenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 